It's a story, but that's why I'm here to tell you stories. The out there somewhere is like you know Jack Armstrong, Superman. It's all just as real as you are, and I am. <laughs> and the Lord and the angels in heaven, how about them? What do you think they're the figment of somebody's imagination? Huh? Nobody makes up anything. Speeding bullets. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's... Now, they lost someone who there is nothing wrong with your television set do not attempt to adjust the picture we are controlling transmission for the next hour sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear you are about to participate in a great adventure you are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind in living color on WTDR. Wow. I mean, some of the scenes you will witness may appear to border on fantasy. Everybody quiet. Just listen. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I say God. Each one of those images was electronically based. How do you like that? I can't remember when I've been so moved. Let me warn you that I say what I think. Say what I think. I'm against communism, capitalism, fascism, Nazism. I'm against everything, and I've often wondered what it would be like to be happy 24 hours a day. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Do you recognize my voice? This is your storyteller. I'm happy to be here with you, and I'd like you to join me. I realize what I'm about to say comes as a great shock. However, using great presence of mind, I'm counting on you to respond appropriately. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in. simultaneously. In the form of energy, our sensory system, and then it explodes into this enormous collage of what this present moment looks like, what it feels like, and what it sounds like. It explodes into this enormous collage, and in this moment, we are perfect, perfect, we are whole, we are whole, and we are beautiful, and we are beautiful. No longer at the mercy of the reptile brain. We can change ourselves. Think of the possibilities. And in this moment, we are perfect. perfect. We are whole. We are whole. And we are. 
And this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Today, we're going to hear from Alan Watts, who died back in 1987, but left behind a legacy of hundreds of fascinating talks. He was a prolific speaker, and I came across this particular piece which was accompanied by music, and when I heard it, I knew I had to share it with all of you, but I just wasn't sure where, when, or how. But here it is. I love the story of a conversation at an English country house at a dinner party, where the hostess started up the question of death and asked the various guests what they thought was going to happen to them when they die. And some thought about reincarnation, and others thought about various kinds of uh, uh, different planes of being, and others thought they were going to be annihilated. But all, n none of the guests had answered except Sir Roderick, who was a kind of a military type, but a very 
devout pillar of the Church of England. He was the church warden, chief of the vestry in the local country parish. And the lady said, Sir Roderick, you haven't said a word. What do you think is going to happen to you when you die? Oh, he said, I am perfectly certain that I shall go to heaven and enjoy everlasting bliss, but I wish you wouldn't indulge in such a depressing conversation. <laughs> and it's true, isn't it? Death in the Western world is a real problem. We hush it up. We pretend it hasn't happened. Our morticians, who are very smart commercial operators, know exactly what's expected of them. And they make death just awful by pretending it doesn't happen. See what happens. You go to a hospital and you're at the end. You've got terminal cancer. And all your friends come around and they wear false smiles and they say, cheer up, you'll be all right. Uh, in a few days from now, you'll be back home. We'll, we'll go out for a picnic again. The doctors, have their bedside man. You see, a doctor is absolutely helpless with a terminal case. Because he's a, a doctor's, by social definition, a healer. And he's not allowed to help you die. He's out of role. Even though, I mean, he may sneak behind the rules and do it. But, but he's definitely, he's got to heal you. So he's going to keep you indefinitely on the end of tubes and all kinds of things. While there's a certain grave demeanor to all this and all the nurses are so pleasant and so totally distant because they know this is death and they may be frank with you that's why they feel distant it's not that they're not concerned it's not that they're heartless people but that they just don't know how to be frank like lots of people when they meet a drunk they don't know what to do with a drunk uh, because uh, he's not behaving right. So, when you're dying, you're not behaving right. You're supposed to live. See, so we don't know what to do with a dying person. We don't get around that person and say, listen, now listen, man, listen, I've got the news for you. You're going to die. And this is going to be great.
No more responsibilities. Don't have to pay those bills anymore. Don't have to worry about anything. You're going to just die. And let's go out with a bang. Let's have a party, see? We'll, 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 we'll put some, uh, some of that morphine in you so that you won't hurt too much. But we were going to prop you up in bed and we're going to bring all our friends around and we're going to have champagne. And you're going to, you're going to die at the end of it, see? And it's going to be just marvelous. Just like being born. When we had birth problems, see, all women used to think that birth had to be painful. It was good for them. It was one of the things you had to suffer because you'd been, you'd been screwing around with people and therefore you, <laughs> you had to have a child and it's got to hurt. And uh, then the doctors got together and they scratched their heads and the man called Granted Dick Reed said, no, birth doesn't hurt, it's natural. You know, all we've got to do is to talk these women into the idea that it doesn't hurt, that all these so-called pains are just tensions. And that uh, birth is great. It's not a disease. It's not really something you ought to go to hospital for. Because you associate hospitals with diseases and sickness. Birth isn't sickness. All right, now let's do some new thinking. What about death? Is death sickness? Or is it a healthy, natural event like being born? Of course it is. So, I mean, a little change in social attitude about this will fortify everybody else. I mean, I'm, if I'm alone and all my relatives are going, kind of <laughs> pretending to me it's going to be hard for me. I've got to challenge the whole bunch of them and get my dander up and say, listen, damn you, I don't want all this thing around here. You've got to take a different attitude about my death. Well, that's hard. But if everybody helps me, and we do, we're all one body. They all come around and say, congratulations, you're going to die. <laughs> Liberation. Liberation now, you see. Because just before you die, I mean, look, I know very well a skillful priest handling a person dying can do this for them. But he has to talk very, very, very straight. And he has to say, listen, these doctors, uh, you don't, don't you pay any attention to them. They're trying to amuse you and deceive you. You're going to die. This isn't terrible. But it's just going to be the end of you as a system of memories. And so you've got a great chance right now before it happens to let go of everything. Because you know it's going to go and it is going to help you. It's going to help you let go of everything. So if you have any possessions left, give them away. Give everything away.
And uh, if you have anything to say that is you felt that you ought to say before you die and that you're kind of hanging on to and it's bothering you, say it. I mean, I don't mean necessarily a last confession, but say it said that Adlai Stevenson, shortly before he died, said that uh, he'd been making a monkey of himself because he didn't agree with the government's policy about something or other. You know, he had to get that off his chest because he had a little thought in the back of his mind that things were catching up with him, you see? So the moment comes when this thing called death has to be taken completely, not as some ghastly accident, something that uh, all your friends are going to stay away because you're awful. I mean, sometimes people, when they die, are in a very unpleasant physical condition. They don't smell good, they don't look good, uh, and so on. But an enormous amount can be done with scientific methods to make things reasonably tidy from a purely sensory point of view. But the main thing is the attitude. That death is as positive as birth and should be a matter for rejoicing because death is the symbol of the liberation. There is a wonderful saying that Ananda Kumaraswamy used to quote, I pray that death will not come and find me still unannihilate. In other words, that man dies happy if there is no one to die. In other words, if the ego has disappeared before death caught up with it. But you see, the knowledge of death helps the ego to disappear because it tells you you can't hang on. we need, uh, if, if we're going to have a, a good religion around, that's one of the places where it can start. Having, I don't know, well, nowadays I suppose they'd call it the institution for creative dying. <laughs> but something like that.
and uh, you can have you, you can have uh, one department where you can have champagne cocktail party to die with another department where you can have glorious religious rituals and priests and things like that another department where you can have uh, psychedelic drugs another department where you can have uh, special kinds of music uh, anything you know all, all, all these arrangements will be provided for in a hospital for uh, delightful dying uh, but that's the thing to go out with a bang instead of a whimper I remember the biggest joke on death I ever saw I mentioned this in my book we visited the Capuchin Friars crypt in the Via Veneto in Rome some of you may have seen it where there are three underground chapels where everything is made of bones and uh, the altar is made of bones the pedestals of the altar are all shin bones and then there are piles of skulls and the decoration of flowers on the ceiling are ribs alternating with vertebrae and the vertebrae are the flowers and the ribs curl this way, curl this way, curl this way, the twining stems and the whole thing is bones and they have even a few full intact skeletons dressed in monks robes standing on either side of these altars it's the craziest thing you ever saw and then when you have seen it and you come out there is a little friar with a beard taking your offering at the top of the steps and he had a funny wicked gleam in his eye <laughs> and uh, one could see that this was a, a joke the whole thing was a joke it was constructed by people who had somehow overcome the fear of death I was fascinated by it because I thought that on the day of the resurrection there's going to be a tremendous scuffle for <laughs> fitting all those bones together and everybody getting up the stairs for the last judgment. <laughs> so if, if, uh, if it is seen uh, that death is the jest, but the question is, you see, we are so tormented by the bugbear of it being the real end by the imagination of the possibility of being in the dark forever 
Now, you really must think this through because uh, it is a pure delusion. If you think, first of all, seriously about annihilation of consciousness, you will realize that annihilation of consciousness couldn't possibly be an experience. But being in the dark forever could be an experience. In supposing you were buried alive and somehow you were immortal, that you had to stay shut up in a tomb for always and always and always, that would be pretty grim. But the annihilation of consciousness is not an experience at all. There isn't anything there to be afraid of. So if that's what's going to happen, there's nothing to worry about, I assure you. But on the other hand, if you think about it longer, about uh, a state of eternal just not being at all, you know, you realize that nature abhors a vacuum. And that since, just as the universe happened once, it uh, could happen again. Since you were born once, you know, it did happen, really. Well, it can happen again. Only uh, the, the next you won't remember the one now, just as the one now doesn't remember the one before. Not because you've forgotten, but as I pointed out yesterday, the fundamental what have you that underlies all this doesn't need a memory.
And so, uh, just in the same way, as you don't need to be conscious of the inner formations of your brain. Also, uh, I, I mean, here I'm, I'm talking speculatively. Also, there are curious connections where we don't see any. That is to say, the interval between events is not insignificant. Just as you don't hear melody unless you hear the interval between tones. It's the interval that counts. So in the same way, at blank intervals between successive manifestations of the universe and blank intervals between your forgetting who you are altogether and dying and someone suddenly becoming a baby. The blank intervals are not insignificant. Every painter knows, every architect knows that the space around an object or inside an object is just as important as the object. That again is the fact. If you don't notice the importance of intervals and you don't notice the importance of space, it is as if you had settled on the carpet here for the black design being the thing and the white background as having no, no significance. So what about the inside of this room? What about the shape of space that it encloses? We would say this is nothing more than a certain quantity of air. But don't you see that the distance, the, 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 the space between that wall and this window is life room? That is not nothing. That it's just as important. It comes into being at the same moment as the walls come into being. It connects them. And so likewise the space between our planet and other planets is not insignificant. So, uh, once you see that intervals of apparent nothingness are significant intervals, that their size uh, makes all the difference to what's happening.
When the intervals between dits are short, the note is high. When the intervals between the dits are long, the note is low or large, the high being little. See, why do we say high and low as distinct from little and big? Big instruments make big noises, little instruments make tiny noises. <laughs> but at any rate, it's the interval that's important. So then, uh, once you see the importance of the interval, you have seen that the white is as important as the black, or the other way round, if you want to change your analogy. Do you see how you can switch these analogies? In one case, the white can be the nothing, the unimportant, whereas the black is the mark somebody made with a, with a, with a crayon. Or the other way round, the black can be the darkness, and the white is the flash of lightning that appears in the darkness. Change your analogy. It's like saying, um, once we used to say about high matters, uh, you know, high matters, lofty thoughts. Uh, but now we don't. It's more fashionable to say deep matters and profound thoughts. <laughs> Someone was telling me yesterday um, in the group here that they were go going to an Indian village in New Mexico where they had the Christianity. But when uh, the speaker referred to Jesus and God and so on, he pointed down all the time. <laughs> because, you see, he felt that things grew up like this from below. Whereas, of course, the ancient cults out of which the Jewish and Christian religions grew had the idea that the life of the sun and the rain came down from the heavens and fertilized the feminine earth which then responded. But these things keep changing because you can keep switching your point of view. You can see the black as the design against the white background, the white as the design against the black background, and you can flip back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And the more you do that, the more you realize that the pairs go together.
Anxiety is the state of trying not to flip. All life is flipping. It's called its flip-flop ability is the condition of life. This way and that way. When you're trying to resist flip-flop ability, you're anxious. You see? When you push against it, it throbs in a way that you interpret as fear. And all rigid personalities, people who can't swing, who have no movement in their hips, as it were, uh, in psychologically, they are resisting flip-flop ability. But when you understand flip-flop ability, and that this is the way things are, then you laugh, because that is the big flip-flop. You can listen to a squalling brat and find it musical. That this child, I'll never forget waking up one morning and listening to a child whining. The child wasn't saying anything, there were no words in it, it was just a plaint. It wasn't exactly crying. It was a kind of... <laughs> and there was something marvelous about it. This child's <laughs> wonderfully articulate protest <laughs> against some sort of nuisance. <laughs> So, listening into those things without interpreting them, listening to one's own interior frustration and pain in the same way, without uh, interpreting it as being on one side or the other, on the good side or the bad side, on the black side or the white side is what makes it possible, you see, to transmute these things. But you, you can't do this. You can't really, honestly, transmute pain into a form of play. form of weird, far-out sensations that are basically just that. So long as you fail to see the inner unity of the opposites, so long as you fall for the idea 
that you are nothing more than this particular life, than this particular ego, which came from nowhere and is going nowhere. While you remain under that illusion, you see, you, you first of all, you don't see your identity with everything else that exists. us who are older inherit teachings of discipline which were all forced on us and we've learned to grow up dull and rigid and so I could say things to this audience that I would not possibly say in an audience of students uh, it's up to you to loosen up and to become a little mad there's no point saying that to a younger audience because they're going to do that anyway <laughs> But um, a great problem for uh, the generation of parents and grandparents is psychic rigidity because we have been indoctrinated for a long time in not being able to trust ourselves. I was discussing, you know, Chinese ideas about trusting human nature, about uh, spontaneity, the disciplines of spontaneity, and so on and so forth. Now, this becomes of peculiar importance to people who have passed the threshold of the middle of life, because in the first half of life, if you've lived your life properly, you're supposed to have set up yourself in the world and have established your business, your profession, or whatever it was, and you go on to the second half of life, you've got to get ready to die. Now. Are you ready to die right now? Would you like, closing, I mean, we were going to be annihilated by an atomic bomb in, say, five minutes. <laughs> Supposing we're going to be anni annihilated by an atomic bomb in five minutes. Uh, what would you think you ought to do between now and then? 
you like to listen to your favorite music? Would you like to make love to a beautiful woman? Or would you just go on a sort of with everyday life as if uh, nothing had happened, like somebody winding up his watch on his way to execution? R.H. Bly has asked this question to a Zen mistress. There are such ladies. Where do you think you're going to go when you die? He said, I don't think I'm going to go anywhere. He said, in that case, I'll go with you. He said, oh, that's so nice. That's the first time a man has ever wanted to go anywhere with me. <laughs> But you see, in, in, it is traditional, all, all cultures have understood this in some way or other, that when you enter the second half of life, the business of that part of life is to get ready to die. That sounds to us terrible, to prepare for death. It suggests preachers coming around and saying, are you ready to meet your maker? You know, ooh. And so, as a result of that, in our culture, death is a thing that is completely swept under the carpet. Uh, you go to hospital, and they don't tell you you're going to die. They pretend it's going to be all right. Uh-huh. Don't worry. Let's say we take an entirely different attitude to death. Say now, look, as the, quite a different. The way we say to the young is... Build up your strength and your skills uh, so that you can take on responsibilities. But death is where you're going to be absolved of all responsibilities. Quite a different scene, but a very liberating one, if you can learn to enjoy it.
Everybody has to die. You can't possibly call it a disease. You may die as a result of a disease or of an accident or anything, but death itself is not a disease. It is simply the other end of life opposite birth. And instead of regarding it as something uh, to be put off and simply really disregarded, death is something for which one should train oneself as a very valuable experience. listening to Alan Watts here on the Magical Mystery Tour. Because death is the automatic taking away of all your attempts to cling on to life. All that frightened clutch is simply going to be broken. Well, it's pretty rough to have it broken. Why don't you let go first? So in that case then, when somebody is about to die, instead of uh, the friends and relations coming around and consoling him and saying, uh, uh, you're going to be all right, uh, they come around instead and say, wowee, uh, this is the great moment for you, you know. Here is the colossal opportunity for you to realize who you really are, because all that you thought you were is going to disappear. What do you suppose is going to be left? go? Do you cooperate with what nature is doing in you? Nature is giving you, by death, the opportunity to let go of all this nonsense. Now, when you've passed the middle point of life, you can see it coming. You begin to read the obituaries, and this friend and that friend has disappeared. And, uh, <laughs> and, and you know it's on the way.
Now instead of uh, avoiding this, what about it? Because nature is in this fact assisting you to let go of yourself, making it easy. What is very difficult for the young, it's hard for the young to face death because they feel there is a, there's a timeliness about death. I'm too young to die. Cut off so soon and there's so much promise, so much potentiality. It's very tough, but as we get older, nature helps us. We realize that, well, we've had it. Past the middle of life, every day is gravy. <laughs> but you're being helped, you see, to this act of release. Though as one of the Zen poets said, while living, be a dead man thoroughly dead, and then whatever you do, just as you will, will be right. So there's a kind of higher zombieism. <laughs> those who are dead while alive, those who have given themselves up to death and will therefore look forward to death as the great enlightenment, the great awakening. And this requires no hocus-pocus, no beliefs in immortality that you can't really be convinced about. It's simply that it's even better for you if you have no beliefs in an afterlife, if you're willing to let the future go completely and abandon any future. Any, anything that you could want to grasp for yourself or to preserve for yourself, you recognize that you're being forced to let it go. There is no promise of any future beyond the grave, see? I'm not saying that there isn't. I'm saying that the psychological state of not expecting anything, of facing death as if it were really the end, and you don't resist this. You end. You have the ability to end. This is central in Krishnamurti's thought. You find that if you do that, uh, something flips inside you as a result of which you have no further questions. You, you will say to yourself, well now for the first time I realize what life is, what it's all about. Because I'm not looking to the future to answer my question. I know there is no future. I end up like that and all future is cut off. Now then, if you can let go of yourself, 
especially in the second half of life, in that way, you cease to be, to be rigid. What young people don't like about old people is that they're rigid. They're stuffy. They, uh, they, it's, it's like Ogden Nash wrote, the trouble with a kitten is that, eventually, it becomes a cat. <laughs> <clears throat> and uh, one understands this to some extent. It's very hard for, let's say, a, a woman who was once very pretty and is now afflicted with rheumatism and uh, what have you, pains all the time to put up with uh, a great deal of noise and dance and stuff going on and it just racks through your head all the time. And therefore you put on an expression that makes you look stuffy. But if you're not racked with pain all the time, you're enjoying a reasonably healthy old age, don't be on the defensive. So to this part of life one must say, it is important to be a little mad. When a bridge built of steel doesn't swing in the wind, it's going to crash. It has no give. Likewise, people who don't have any give are in danger of being insane. In order to be sane, the, the stew has to have a little salt in it. The good human being has to have a little rascality in it. So the sane person, especially the mature person, must have a little craziness. Just as uh, it says in the book of Genesis that God ordered that every seventh day should be a holiday. One seventh of your life should be madness. Otherwise you'll be crazy. Because too rigid. And 
therefore, it's important for all of us who are set in our ways, who are habituated to certain patterns of life, and we cling to these, to get off. Not all the time, but about a seventh of the time. And learn to swing. <laughs> and that means that uh, the art of uh, meditation, shall we say, for the older people is not necessarily what the art of meditation is for the younger people. It's the older people who need to be present at a happening where you don't know what's going to happen, where anything might happen, where you simply allow what it is in you to do whatever it likes. Chinese sage Lietze, old gentleman, said, I let my mouth say whatever it wanted to say. I let my ears hear whatever they wanted to hear. I let my eyes see whatever they wanted to see. I let my feet go wherever they wanted to go. And then I didn't know whether the wind was riding on me or whether I was riding on the wind. After all, uh, you are all practiced people, mature people who can be trusted upon to behave themselves, and not like the monk of Siberia, burst from the cell and devour the father superior. You, 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 you're all uh, mature, and therefore you can trust yourselves to let go of it, and to be a little mad. Now, I know that such a proposal goes ill with many older people's images of themselves as responsible citizens, mature people, so on and so forth. <laughs> but you've always got to have that little secret part of your life. You don't have to do it out in front of God and everybody. See, that, that, that's asking too much. But you must have that secret corner in your life where you can be the skeleton in your own closet. <laughs> be crazy. Otherwise you won't be sane. Alan Watts. I hope you enjoyed that.
We shape ourselves to fit this world, working together. We shape ourselves to fit this world, and by the world are shaped again. The visible and the invisible, working together in common cause to produce the miraculous. I'm thinking of the way the invisible air traveled at speed round a shaped wing easily holds our weight. I'm thinking of the way the invisible air traveled at speed round a shaped wing easily holds our weight. So may we in this life trust to those elements we have yet to see or imagine and find the true shape, the true shape of our own self by forming it well to the great intangibles about us.
for this magical mystery tour. Until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. <laughs>